0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: This is polarization politics. When you go into politics and the thinking and the strategy is we're going to turn out our base, these are the type of things that can result. So it is historic, but it's also sort of a feature, not a bug, of a very polarized politics. (music) Well, welcome to the Roaring Twenties. Uh, 2023 begins. I want to thank you in advance for listening to this podcast. And um, before we get to today's subjects, which will be about that Speaker of the House election and also about the Constitution, I'd like to let you know a little bit about what's going on with the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. If you're new to the show, just like your first time listening, maybe you want to skip ahead about five minutes or so. For the rest of you, I'd like to let you know I really appreciate you listening. I mean, we are three years away from this being 20 years, which is crazy for a podcast. I don't even want to think about it. We are three episodes in already to our Fall of the USSR podcast special series that's coming in February 6th. But I want to let you know, if you want to listen right now, There's three episodes already up on the Patreon. That's at patreon.com slash mhcbuyp. It's also, you can just go to the website, www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com, and there's a link there if you want to binge out on those episodes right now. It's three now, it'll probably be four pretty soon, and uh, it's looking like it's going to be a total of seven episodes. It's a long story to tell. We tell the story of the August 19th, 1991 coup attempt in the Soviet Union where eight men of very high positions tried to lock Gorbachev in his vacation house and take over the Soviet Union. They came a lot closer than people think. Opponents of them didn't realize they were winning until very, very late in the game. So it's if you want to binge right now, go to the Patreon. You can do that for as low as $3 a month to be a friend of my history, can beat up your politics on Patreon. $3 a month. Cancel anytime you want. You join anytime, cancel anytime. That's how Patreon works. There are yearly plans available where you get a small discount at something like 9%. I want to thank some of the recent Patreon joins Billy Page, thank you. Michael Glass, Bruce F. Paige Brousseau, thank you. Ryan Kellerman, Mark Salter, Paul Sullivan, Erica, Peter, Robert Nicholson, Brian Gold, Thomas Caldwell, Justin Chaser, Carl Torby, Dan Rivoli, Al Mendelssohn, Christopher Wagner, Don Vincent, the Free Thinkers Network, Joshua Tanzer, Jose Martinez, Ulysses, Chuck and Brandy. Richard Mahoney, Neil Schwartzman, Randall Williams, Michelle Bertrand, Alex Sheldon, Ben Fuller, Timothy Monning, John Blackwell, Brian Dodd, Matthew Snyder, Michael Ducek, W.V. Sterling, Kevin Witten, Cody Jones. Thank you, thank you, thank you. There's more. I've had longtime supporters that, that I really have to thank. It helps the show to keep going. Now, People will say, well, you have ads on your program. And I do. I'm part of Airwave Media Network. We have ads running. It's still true that the Patreon and other sources of donations help to keep the show going, keep to pay some of the expenses of the program, journal articles, subscriptions that are needed, newspaper subscriptions that are needed, books, very important, all the different website costs, your donations help. At some point, I would like this to be a full-time enterprise. Probably not forever, but to have some period of it being a full-time enterprise, which can only be mean more content for you. So those donations help. The ads are one source, but this helps as well. Um, okay. Speaking of more content, what do you get? You get those... USSR episodes before everybody else. You also get Draft LBJ, a special podcast uh, two hours long that we did on Lyndon Johnson's pursuit of the nomination in 1968, even though he forswore any interest in the presidency. There's a lot of evidence that says the opposite. So we go to that Chicago 1968 convention and talk about Lyndon Johnson's roll there. Did we really almost see a helicopter land on the top of the convention center and bring the president in for a special surprise? We think politics are crazy now, right? That's one of those things. The other thing that you get with the Patreon is um, I will very often release episodes early. And when I do that, there's no ads. I will also release my notepads very often, my extras that I didn't use in the series. Now, we did that for the Student Loan podcast. We did that for the Frank Willis Watergate episode and the Congressional Committees episode that we did last year. So we have extras from that that are on the Patreon available. We have extras from the War of 1812 episode last year. We have leftovers from the Vision of a Fever 1941 from that podcast that we did last year. There's also some extras from previous years um, and some additional episodes. I did one on the Mayflower for Thanksgiving for members of the Patreon. So there's things that you get there. Listen, is it every week? No, it's not as frequent as the podcast. But as I have material, you know, I'll release it. And you'll get some early episodes. Hey, if you like the program, want to help us out, do what you can. Many people join and then leave and join. I mean, it all helps. I take any support I can get. I don't look... Scans at anything. Okay. I look back and I, at 2022. I see a lot to be proud of. My favorite personal episode of the year was Abyssinia, which was about the Italian-Ethiopian invasion. And, of course, we were doing that almost the same week as the Russia-Ukraine invasion. It was a story of the resistance in the 1930s of the Ethiopian people. A little bit stronger than expected to that Italian, than expected to that Italian invasion and stronger than has commonly been reported in history. It was It was um, also forgotten in history that in the end, the Ethiopians did win. Uh, it was a real crunch time episode. I did that like in a weekend, and I'm particularly proud of it. Got a lot of—very uh, proud to get emails from people who tell me that, you know, it's a story that needs to be told more, and I'm thankful to help. But probably— um, my second favorite was Visions of a Fever, nineteen forty-one, where we talked about what America was like, and that you know, in a period that we're like with Ukraine, where you have this kind of divided support for Britain, not total support, and you have some. Well, there were some spy networks operating, and that luckily got uncovered by the FBI, but also some propaganda that funded groups like Moms Against you know, Foreign Intervention that was obviously funded by Germany and not really seen. So 1941 tells you a lot until you started seeing sinking of American boats and sailors dying before Pearl Harbor. We weren't as involved in that war. So You know, and I contrast that with something like Zelensky's visit to the Capitol recently. Big historic moment. But there in there, there's some division. There's some division. You see it on your TV screen with some members of Congress sitting down. You see it in social media with certain comments from people, not just people from Russia, but I think some of it is instigated from there. um, Having a little bit of difference of opinion. It's not... So different in American history, we have many times causes for which there are, you know, maybe 70 to 80 percent support in America, but then a smaller group that aren't for it. And that's often how I guess, you know, America throughout its history is a vast country of vast opinions. So World War One, for instance, is a perfect example. Uh, we talked about that speaker election with Champ Clark. Champ Clark was not for intervention and was against Wilson's plan to intervene. Now, when the vote happened and war was declared, he he went along, of course, um, tried to cut some of the funding and things like that. But he, um, you saw at least 50 congressmen vote against World War One in its ramp up. And there was a lot of opposition to it. And then afterwards, afterwards, too, All the troops had been sent. American boys had died. There was a lot of recriminations and congressional investigations of how we got into the war. Some of them anti-Semitic. We talked about some of those investigations on the congressional committees. So I felt like you were well prepared in 2022 for the events that would happen throughout that year. I also, you know, I'm proud to say, hey, we did a few episodes on midterm saying, guys, it's not always going to be a huge defeat. You have things like Nixon's lonely midterm where, yeah, he beat himself up for it, but he got a midterm almost the same as Biden in 2022. You know, some good news in the Senate for him, and the House wasn't too bad. Uh must report, we had an episode not too long ago during the World Cup on the mystery of the goalposts story, where in Argentina they put black bands on the goalpost and said that they did that to honor the victims of the junta. Here's the problem. That was a UK Guardian story on their website. But further attempts to find the source have not been successful. So I have to throw a little doubt on that story, maybe even a lot of doubt. It's more likely than not, it may not have happened. Those black bands were used. There's certain games where they had it before or after. Bit of a mea couple. Normally, you know, we don't get too many things wrong here and I hear about things when I get them wrong and got some pronunciations and bad there's that you know a couple towns in New York State Chile instead of Chai li and definitely some British towns that we pronounce wrong and things like that we try to get things I think I mixed up Patton and MacArthur on one episode I mean we try to get things right, so I do you know, apologize for that. It's still possible it happened. There's just no sourcing to prove it anymore. So we have to take that mystery of the goalposts and make it a real question mark, whether that actually happened. It's one of those stories you wish it did happen, right, that these victims were remembered. Speaker of the House election. So we have, um, I think, a very weakly controlled House right now in Washington, D.C. Kevin McCarthy won out his speakership battle after 15 ballots. So you have to go back to the 19th century to get that many ballots. The last one was Frederick Gillett and Frederick Gillick was running for speaker in 1923 and had just two ballots. It really was quick. The progressives just sent him a quick message that, uh, hey, we're here and you need to take us seriously and give us a few things. They did. It was resolved by the second ballot. Not much to say about Gillick. He was a man who didn't really take it that personally. He wasn't somebody who banged the Speakers gavel, you know, to death on the podium or or went after his opponents. He was a pretty calm person. He worked a nine to five day, didn't drink coffee because he didn't want to ruin his sleep or be under too much pressure. He's, you know, one of the things that Gillett did, other than being the last multiple speaker ballot election, is uh, he's the one that nominates Coolidge at the 1920 Republican Convention. So he's responsible, in effect, for making a president. What was his reward for that? Coolidge goes to him as president and says, 1926 midterms are coming. We need that Senate seat in Massachusetts. You have to give up the speakership and run for Senate. He doesn't want to. You have the, the nation's most reluctant senator in Gillett who gives up his speakership to become a senator. I'm not sure of a, anyone since then that has. There's been no speaker that's done that since then. Um, so in any case, you have that. So that's the last. Um, Now, here is one fun fact about the speaker's election. We count faster these days. It must be the electronics. It must be how capable Cheryl Johnson, the, the clerk of the House was. Whatever it is, the current House, at the rate they were doing ballots, which is almost four ballots a day, that rate, they could have got the 1855 speaker election done in 35 days instead of two months. But, you know, here's the thing. Here's the most important thing about that whole speaker's election. You lost a week, and it's not a small week. It's a critical week. If you're a party that's won an election, like you say the uh, Republicans in 1994, or in 2014, or in 2010, or in the Democrats in 2006 or 2018. You want that first week to be your showcase that you are in effect repudiating the administration that's been elected and their actions, that the people are strongly against what a president is doing. That's your week to ramp up and make that case and then take that president into 2024 with a blemish, a mark. When the focus is on you, you're already doing it wrong. That's the way I see it, and that's what you saw last week from me recording this. Um, The midterm, the Senate hold and gain for the president's party, the Democrats in this case, and last week's events have ended any momentum where you really can do that, and it's really just, you know— I mean, on the other hand, to be fair, any way you slice it, it's not a Democratic House. It might have been a divided GOP House, and the Democrats might have had a lot of fun with adjournment votes and being sure that they were there and unified so that Kevin McCarthy had to fight among Republicans for his speakership. But it's not a Democratic House. And so even if, you know. No matter how crazy the House gets, even if space aliens come in the middle of the House floor and dance or something, it doesn't matter. It's a thorn in the side for Biden. So there is that. And he, he would much rather prefer, any president would much rather prefer to have controlled the House going into a presidential election next year. They still have investigating powers. They can hold up funding for after current budgets are spent. Um, so there's a lot of votes that they'll have, but everything they do, everything McCarthy needs to do will be harder and tainted. But for the moment, you know, McCarthy does control the much larger portion, about 90% of Republicans in the House. This was a very small group, at most, you know, about 20, 21, that were holding out. Um, here's an interesting thing. So some of the concessions made among them would be. The ability to vacate the Speaker. So one, really, only one GOP member is needed to vacate the Speakership if they're against it. And, uh, will to force a vote to do so. It goes to a vote. It's on the House floor. And now they would need just five Republicans to be against McCarthy again at some future point, And all the Democrats again. And so on this, and I predict many things, the Democrats are going to be one of the most important groups because in some ways they're the largest unified group, that that might be tested, largest unified group in the House. So when you look at a motion to vacate in the future, if you get one person, let's say Gates or... Boebert or one of these—it's now going to be the choice of Democrats whether they join that motion to vacate. Do they want it at that point? Do they want to open up the Speaker's chair? Uh, and he, I mean, this is assuming there isn't a huge rebellion where McCarthy wouldn't even have—you know—this—you um, know—would lose all of his Republicans. This is polarization politics. When you go into politics. And the thinking and the strategy is we're going to turn out our base. These are the type of things that can result. So it is historic, but it's also sort of a feature, not a bug of a very polarized politics. But I would look out for those motions to vacate. I would predict you're probably going to get a couple months of relatively smoothish sailing before you get to something like that. But it's a power that they fought pretty hard about, so I would assume these, they didn't insist on that power for no reason at all. So Democrats have to decide whether they want to join that. They may decide, we don't want any part of this because the new speaker could be worse for us. Or they could decide we do and have some kind of coalition worked out. There are GOP relative moderates, um, you know, Brian Fitzpatrick, Tom Kane Jr., others, Lawler, you might put in there, others, that might get tired of the holdout Freedom Caucus, whatever you want to call them, driving the show for too long. It might take a while because they were McCarthy supporters, the moderates, so they're going to be, you know, probably we're talking about something that might not happen until next year. But next year, if they find that they're being eased out of all of these decisions, you may get them very angry and wanting to start to put somebody in. Maybe Democrats want to join with that. Or Democrats have a third option, which is just to join the motion to vacate the Speaker and give Kevin McCarthy another one of these Speaker elections. You know, more trouble. Um, so anyway, there's a lot going on. And that, and that and that's just one type of vote we're talking about. On any number of issues, you could see where there would be different coalitions of Democrats and different types of Republicans. Um, so, you know, it's historic. It's different, but it's... In some ways, it's interesting to see we have these rules for a reason. They're there to be used. I mean, maybe there is a group of Americans that like the fact that not everything is worked out in the back room like that. OK. A lot of focus on Nathaniel Banks because this was the speaker that it took 133 ballots to be elected In 1856. It starts in 1855. It really comes out of elections that start in 1854. And that's why it's so crucial that the timing of Congress changed. And we're going to talk about that a bit. It goes, this speaker's election, from December 1855 to January 1856. It takes two months. And it comes after the previous year's midterms, where you had tremendous change. That's really what brings this on. First, you know, you you see the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which destroys the Missouri Compromise. and means that there could potentially be slavery in any new territory in the Union because the territorial governments can vote. This is Stephen Douglas's brainchild, popular sovereignty. They can vote whether they want to be free or slave. And it sounds really good until you start to see it happens first in Kansas, that there can be bloodshed over it, that it's, it, it depends who's living in that territory, and that can change. You can have people moving there. And both the Missourians and the New Englanders come into Kansas with some violent results that are happening during this time. So in 1854, there's a huge reaction, particularly in the North to this. And the North really gets radicalized, you might say, against slavery or really more accurately against slavery's expansion into the territories. A lot of the people that will become anti-Nebraskans, you know, aren't going to mess with the condition of slavery in the southern states at the current time. But they're steadfast against slavery's expansion into the territories. Franklin Pierce, the president, is unpopular, so this is one of your typical first-term, midterms in American history, and the Democrats lose a ton of seats. You have elected, in various forms, 51 know-nothings, or they would call themselves American parties in the north of the country. They might be called North American Party, that are anti-immigrant against the involvement of Catholics in politics. So there's a bigotry to the know nothings, but it's a mix because it's bigotry mixed with anti slavery. And this is fashioned this way. For a lot of reasons. Some people actually feel this way strongly. They have secret clubs. They're called No Nothings for this reason. They don't know anything about the existence of a club that's against non Protestant sake. But I also think there's a number of members of the club that are utilizing it as opportunity. We're we also saw this with the beginning of the Anti Masonic Club, which has connect. so it's you know, I don't really believe this so much, but there's a lot more interest against immigrants than there is in being against slavery. So I'm going to blend the two, and this is going to be my propulsion politically. And people like Nathaniel Banks, who is from Massachusetts, kind of fit into that. He's he's an American party running, but he's also a free soiler. And Massachusetts gets taken over by the know-nothings, But there are also very strong anti-slavery know-nothings. They're going to be very strong in several states. You're even going to see southern states where know-nothings get elected. Tennessee, Texas, you see congressmen who are know-nothings. Now, at the same time, there are anti-Nebraskans, not yet called Republicans, but in Ohio, for instance, the whole state gets swept by anti-Nebraskans defeating Democratic candidates same almost happens in Michigan, they get a majority, and in Wisconsin, where the Republicans get a majority. In Indiana, you have something called the People's Party, but they're very similar against the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Then you have the Democrats, there's 83 of them, but they're divided. So this Congress is, is quite divided. There are three candidates running, Aikens, Fuller, and Banks. Banks is... As we said, anti-slavery or anti-expansion of slavery. Aiken is pro-slavery. Fuller somewhere in the middle. Fuller would be described best as a Northern Democrat, probably a Douglas, Stephen Douglas-style Democrat for popular sovereignty. So these three are very different types of philosophies. And not total unity among the know nothings. You've got a few former Whigs that are still left, this kind of fossil party. Many of them are in the South and they're kind of pro slavery, so they're going to side with the Democratic Speaker Aiken on some things. Some of the know nothings are going to go for Aiken. And you have several candidates running. In the first ballot, there are 21. Now, some of them are like what you saw last week, Scalise or Jim Jordan, where people are want them to be speaker, but they don't want it. And like in Jim Jordan's case, they're getting votes anyway. And you see that happening with some of these people. There's a Republican candidate, Andrew Pennington, who runs, and eventually he gets out of the race because there are some people that don't like Nathaniel Banks. There's some personalities involved here. And there are some people that, even though they share the anti-slavery, they don't. So it goes for, you know, dozens of ballots, and Pennington finally is persuaded to drop out, so you have unity behind banks as the anti-slavery candidate, but it still goes for ballots and ballots. December goes into January. You get to 108 ballots, and nobody's quite given up here. And finally, there's a no nothing um, congressman from Tennessee who says, let's stop this, and let's have a debate.
0: So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: And he takes all of the three, and then the House agrees, and they they take the three candidates for speaker, and they ask a series of questions about their belief about the expansion of slavery, about popular sovereignty. This is uh, basically the Kansas-Nebraska Act, Stephen Douglas's idea. And a couple other questions, but all relating to slavery and have them answer. And they all give very frank answers, though some of them are hedged a little uh, so that they don't lose support. But they all answer the questions. But you know, this is the hundredth and eighth ballot. And they, even after answering this whole question, the Democrats were trying to embarrass Fuller, the Northern Democratic candidate from Pennsylvania, by making him take a stand that you know, some of his supporters wouldn't like. Doesn't really work because you go into January 133 ballots. So there's more than 20 more ballots before they finally decide, let's just do a plurality, let's elect Nathaniel Banks, and it's 103 to 100. Okay. He becomes Speaker. Uh, By all accounts, there are some people who are on the other side of the aisle, Don't necessarily agree with his politics. Alexander Stevens, Hal Cobb, you know, who will both be in the Confederacy after this. And Nathaniel Banks is going to become a Union general, not a good one, but he will become a Union general. They say he was a pretty good speaker. And some of the anti slavery people are like, you know, he's not really picking us for the committees. He's being too fair and things like that. So Banks goes down as a pretty good speaker, bad Union general. Um, A politician that sort of gave Lincoln some problems because his political support for the war depended on some personalities in Massachusetts. He's a strong personality that Lincoln had to deal with. He couldn't fire him. They didn't get rid of him as a general until 1864, long in the war, even though he wasn't winning battles. Uh, But as a politician, he seems to be very successful. But something else, this speaker's election in 1856, when Banks wins, despite the 133 ballots, this fight is really about something. It's about slavery uh, and slavery's expansion, and it's about North versus South, and it's even recognizing that there is a North, because some people feel like in Washington, D.C., in the federal government, it's so pro-South that the North isn't even getting anywhere. They're just kind of like an opposition party squeaking once in a while, and it's, it's a big win. And they're going to go on to investigate things like the government in Kansas, um, the 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 caning of Charles Sumner, like things that are occurring. There's a, a place now to send. There's a there's a national figure, Speaker Banks, that people can send matters to now relating to anti slavery. So it's uh, you know, I mean, I think. Uh, Hope we prepared you from some of the episodes for that speaker's race. There's been close congresses before. That was a real doozy, but enough said there. Some podcasts that I've been listening to. You know, I do listen to my own podcast, but that's not it. (laughs) There's uh, a lot of other podcasts that I've been listening to. You know, Road to Now. So they had me on. um, I was interviewed by Ben Sawyer of Road to Now podcast recently about presidential rhetoric. Look that up. They've had some pretty good, they continue their chain of good, strong historical discussions about how we got to here, which is what we do on this program. And uh, they do it in an interview format mostly, but I like it. And they are now on Sirius XFXM on the POTUS channel. So check it road, road to now out if you have the POTUS channel on Sirius XM. They're friends of the show. Infamous America, one of the Airwave Media Network podcasts, really enjoy listening to his podcast. There's a great one about called Spies Like Us, which is a four-part series uh, about two teenagers that are friends in the um, Los Angeles area that end up becoming spies for the USSR and how they get into it and why it happened, because it's highly unusual. Um, spies like us, check that out on Infamous America Podcast. They coined it, the Mad Men podcast. I really like what Roberta and Dan are doing on that cast. It's one of the most insightful Mad Men con podcasts. They come from a long history of having done a blog. In the beginning of the Mad Men TV show, they know Matt Weiner and things like that. So it's really insightful. They go through each episode. And it's one of the few podcasts that like is actually gonna do it from episode one to the end, which you're you, you got some cast that started in the middle or that started at the beginning and then lost steam. So I'm I'm really enjoying they coined it podcast. Another one, even though they haven't completed the series, is Mad Women, um, who talk about Mad Men podcast, and they're really just funny. So, it's not like they coined it isn't funny, but you're going to get a serious examination of the Mad Men episodes, including a lot of history. And then Mad Women is just kind of a funny approach, um, you know, if you like that. Cautionary Tales. I like that podcast. I like some of the Pushkin podcasts. Cautionary Tales. Lost Hills tells a story, deep cover, about the mob in Chicago. Um, Pretty interesting. British Scandal I've been listening to, particularly the Boris Johnson episodes. If you want a real history of Boris Johnson, his rise from being a reporter to being prime minister. Um, I I had no idea that he and David Cameron, the former prime minister, went to Eton school at the same time and knew each other. American Epistles, which are letters, pistols, letters, where she talks about history through the lens of reading people's letters. So you get this real sense of what it's like. She has a series on Chinese immigration that really gets you to the heart of the story. If you like My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, I think you'd like her American Epistles. It's not something that does like an episode every week. But the episodes that are up there, the backlist is is really good. So check that out. Um, Ohio versus the world continues to do good stuff. Check out his Panama War episodes. Check out um, his Cuba episode. And I still think you know, ten cent beer nights is a classic one. If you haven't listened to Ohio versus the world on that, um, entitled opinions. This is a college radio show from Stanford. I love it. I've been listening to it for as long as I've been podcasting. And, um, uh, Dr. Robert Harrison does it. And it's pretty intense philosophy and, and art and music and literature and things like that. Pretty intense discussions. Uh, I can't claim to be an expert on everything, but it, it fascinates me. He's got one on the issue of mental health and depression where, and it's, um, Robert Harrison on Depression is the name of the episode. It's from last year, but he's talking about how politicians need to start thinking about this as a societal issue, and even though he's more of a libertarian, doesn't like to get into politics, he makes a really convincing case. Listen to that, and just listen to a lot of his episodes. They're quite good. I know it's going to shock you. I listened to, like, Rob Lowe's podcast, and For what it is, the guy's a pretty good podcaster. Uh, I mean, he actually does a great job with it. He's got one where him and Aaron Sorkin talk. And I think if you're a West Wing TV show fan, you got to listen to that. So, uh, some of the episodes, you know, I could leave, but there's some, there's some goodies. Uh, it it is funny. It does a much better show than you might think. Um, I'm going to leave it at that for now. It's not that unusual a story in American politics. A president is blocked by a senator, finds his way around the Senate, the senator gets mad and responds. But in this case, the senator's way of getting back at that president was to make him start his term earlier, and presidents in the future to start their terms earlier. Well, it may not seem obvious why he did it, and it never ended up affecting the president that he had targeted, Warren Harding. George Norris would live on to see his solution after Harding was long gone. But it starts with a ship subsidy bill, a really obscure piece of legislation, also known as the Merchant Marine Bill. Increase the mail pay that shipping companies would get to $4 a mile, plus a tax the shipping companies could be refunded. To Norris and others, especially farm state progressives who were dealing with high shipping rates on things that they bought, it seemed like a handout to the big shipping companies. They didn't want it. Harding did want it, and so he pushed it. He didn't have the votes. And they go into the 1922 midterms. This is Harding's, his first midterm, his only midterm, as it turned out, as president. Republicans are destroyed. They lose over 70 seats. Harding-friendly GOP congressman lost in that midterm, partially on this shipping giveaway bill. Well, now the people have spoken, right? You wouldn't want to touch this issue anymore, right? No. Harding wants to bring in the so-called lame duck congressman and vote for this bill again. And one of the reasons he can do it is because the elections are happening in 1922, but the Congress is still in office until late 1924. Why does Harding think he can get away with it? You just had a minute. Well, that's because all of the congressmen that lost now are free to vote for his bill or not. They're free to do whatever they want because they're not going to face another election. Norris is a popular, progressive Republican in the state of Nebraska. He does not kowtow to party leaders. He had already, in 1910, taken on Speaker Uncle Joe Cannon, the the, the powerful Republican Speaker, and dethroned him, in effect, working with Democrats. And this is what he'll do his entire career. He's going to be in Congress up until the 1940s. Norris doesn't like this idle time, neither do other progressives, but they don't know how to address it. It's going to have to be a fundamental thing, so he comes up with a constitutional amendment. He is the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, and he pushes it through. Both congressmen and senators start, and he pushes it through. And the amendment, you know, you know the amending procedure in the Constitution. You have to get two-thirds of the House and Senate And then it has to go out to the states to be ratified by three-fourths of the state. He pushes it through. And it's approved in the Senate. Gets the two-thirds. But Harding is now smarting from the defeats and the defeat in the midterm. And progressives like Norris not being loyal to the party. He controls the House Speaker. At this time, it is Frederick Gillett, we mentioned earlier. It doesn't even get a hearing, his amendment. So it does not pass the House. And it goes all the way till that 72nd Congress that we mentioned, the one where 14 congressmen-elect had died. Democrats get the Speaker's gavel. John Nance Garner becomes Speaker. He's a supporter of Norris's amendment, which is to start Congress earlier on January 3rd, and it passes. 336 to 56 in the House, and the states like it too. There's almost a rush to pass it. There are 18 states that pass it in a three-week period, and then in two days, eight more. And in, in the end, it's ratified by 48 states in 1933. And it is the 20th Amendment. The president will start on January 20th. The Congress will start on January 3rd. So Norris gets his wish 10 years after he proposed it, where the shipping bill is not live anymore. Congress will no longer have, he thinks, these lame duck sessions. Now, the ra- reality is they have several times in our history, including, you know, last year. But they're a bit rarer, and they do less in them. You know, Joe McCarthy was censured during a lame duck session, and Clinton was impeached during a lame duck session. So they still happen, but it makes it rarer. So the twentieth means that FDR, Franklin Roosevelt, was the last president to take office, March fourth. And then the next time he's elected, and those other three times, it'll be January 20th. So, yes, presidents, George Norris just made you colder. JFK with that frosty breath. Poor Robert Frost in the background in 1961. You can tell how cold he is. Cars are stuck in a blizzard getting there. But Norris's goal just wasn't to make presidents cold. And the presidency was really just a side effect. But there was something that he wanted to get done, and that is to get the new Congress in place before the presidential election on the 20th, so that they, and not that old lame duck Congress, would be the ones weighing in on any kind of abnormal result in the presidential election. So he was thinking about that too, even though it hasn't yet been relevant. He made it clear he wanted to be sure the fresh face house would pick the president, not the old one. The gentle knight of progressive ideals is what Franklin Roosevelt called George Norris. And he would be in the Senate until the 1940s. But the 20th Amendment is, is an unusual one. All 48 states at the time agreed on it and ratified it rather quickly. That really makes it unusual.
2: I'm Jane Perlez
1: Very little opposition. Since then, there's been no Supreme Court decisions about it or constitutional challenges of any significance to it, and we've amended the Constitution 27 times, and the 20th was one of them back in 1933. We don't amend our Constitution a lot. That is just clear. When we do it, it's these really broad proposals that you have Republicans and Democrats seem to be for, and there's still a fight, nor is still had to wait 10 years for something pretty practical. Compare and contrast that to other constitutions, just one, for instance, the Indian Constitution. First passed in 1950, the Indian Constitution has been amended 105 times with the last amendment made just in 2021, related to an affirmative action program for particular castes in the country is going to be my simplified explanation of it. That's a very different Just since 1950, they've had 105 amendments, the most amended constitution in the world. Ours is so little amended. Brian Thomas asks on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics Discussion Group site, which is on Facebook, you can join that. Uh, I wonder if the founding fathers, the framers of the Constitution, would be shocked that there hasn't been another federal constitutional convention in the subsequent 235 years since the Constitutional Convention, especially since most states have had multiple. And uh, thanks, Brian. Great question. Great point, too. Largely, I think it's a feature and not a bug in the Constitution. The Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia in 1787 made it hard. They thought about amendment only at the end of the convention, when people were bringing up a Bill of Rights, and it was starting to seem like, oh boy, we're just going to end up having a second convention, then a third, and there really will be no one unifying constitution. And so they added the amendment procedure into the constitution. But by all objective standards, we have a hard amendment process. India's constitution I just mentioned is, um, and I hope I don't get this wrong, but it's majority of the legislative body and then majority of the states. Makes it a lot easier to do amendments to the constitution. And I think what you see is they're doing things like normal political issues getting resolved with amendments. We're usually doing things that are a bit more fundamental. Can there be slavery in the United States? Can women vote? Can 18-year-olds vote? When does the Congress start? You know, these type of questions. Can you have an income tax? These type of questions. So largely, I think it's feature, not bug. They made it difficult because our system is Two-thirds of Congress, already hard to get. Are the House and the Senate? Hard. Very hard. Then it goes out and has to get three-fourths of the state. And I think there's three reasons there hasn't been a constitutional convention called, which can be called by two-thirds of the states. So if Congress doesn't want to put forward amendment, right, you can have the states say, we want to do it. And if two-thirds of the states agree, you can have a constitutional You can have a convention that would come up with several amendments ostensibly and amend the Constitution. I think change is dicey and subject to domination by a faction, so that's made it difficult. It's a pain, and it's not just one. Everyone thinks like, hey, my issue will get decided if we have a new convention, right? They're going to change the Senate so it's by population. Yeah, you might get that. But there would be other issues. Maybe abortion comes up. Maybe, you know, ten other issues comes up. So people are afraid of that. They're afraid of what other issues might be brought up, a kind of the Pandora's box argument. The second is amendments, while not great, have been kind of enough to fix the major problems, to do the stitching, and slavery took care of Reconstruction and Who Votes, and some of the Progressive amendments that are needed, limiting the president, limiting states. The third, I believe, was not properly considered by the framers. And it is, you don't hear people talk about this much. And it's that the more states you add, the harder it is to pass an amendment. I mean, it's just mathematically and politically harder. There's more instances of someone who can say no. There's more instances of someone you have to get to say yes. Just making it harder. So when there were 12 states, you needed nine. I think a lot of it was around Rhode Island that they thought would be obstinate, and maybe North Carolina that they thought would be obstinate in the way of something that the country broadly wanted to do. So nine works. You just have to get nine states, they approve it. Now you got to get 38. That's a lot harder. That's a lot harder. So this has prevented amendments to where we've only amended 27 times in 235 years, never had another convention. I think they would be surprised. I really do. I mean, think particularly Jefferson, right? He's not at the convention, but he's the one that talks about we really should be doing this more often. It's for the living, not the dead. I think they'd be surprised. Even the ones that were the most optimistic about the Constitution. I don't think they'd be shocked by hearing that the country, like, in 100 years— had a different constitution. Uh, I think they just wanted a stable government that would last for the, the at least the near term, and I and I think they'd be surprised. But the mechanics again, um, that combo of well, you know, twenty not a lot, but we did amend it where we absolutely needed to, and also it's hard. <laughs> Three fourths is really hard to get. That's a Doesn't mean, you don't need many states to say no to not pass something. So the real question that people have to deal with is, are they happy? And I don't, you know, I don't know as we move along in years whether it's made people happy, but there is a kind of just deal with it philosophy as well, and a little bit of fear of opening up any kind of Pandora's box on it. That's all I can talk about right now. I want to thank you for listening. Happy New Year. And if you want those episodes of the USSR Fall Podcast, www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Thanks for listening.